With our two children, Catherine and I spent the Thanksgiving holiday visiting our parents, both sets of parents in Alabama, and it was a wonderful trip. It's always great for the grandparents to see the grandchildren, of course, but a part of what made it so nice is that unlike last year and the year before and the year before that, there were no debates or fights about the president. I've learned that it does not matter who the president is, we will fight about it. It could be President Obama or President Trump, and usually things get a little bit out of hand just as you're passing the turkey. (laughs) But not this year. An angel of peace descended upon both of our houses. In the Bible, political leaders are maybe even more controversial than they are at this moment in American society. For the longest time, Israel was led not by a monarch, but strangely led by this combination of judges and prophets. And that lasted hundreds of years until finally one day most of Israel clamored for a monarch and demanded to have a king. And they wanted a king, they said, because they would be like other nations. There was an efficiency that came from having a monarch, a clarity that came from having a monarch. So they go to the prophet Samuel and they demand that he anoint a king. Samuel consults with God. God is very disappointed because God sees the desire for a monarch for Israel is a sign of unfaithfulness, a lack of trust in God's will, God's vision, God's presence, God's prophets. God relents, and so Samuel does anoint a king. And the first king, of course, is Saul. Saul, for a number of years, does quite well. He goes off to a great start. And then things turn, and so he has to be replaced. And so Samuel consults with God again. And God says, this time, before you choose, here's the deal. Remember, don't look upon the outward appearance for this king. Don't select one based upon height or stature or power. For God does not see as mortal sees. God looks at the human heart. Samuel takes that. And then selects the young shepherd David, who becomes the second king in Israel's history. In church history and tradition, political leaders are just as complex, just as controversial in almost every single age. Just a few weeks ago, we remembered on the church's calendar and commemorated at the Wednesday Eucharist, Samuel Seabury, who's the first bishop of the Episcopal Church. He was selected by his peers in the Diocese of Connecticut, and they wanted to get him ordained. So where do they send him in order to get apostolic succession? Of course, to the mother church, the Church of England. But the Church of England would not ordain Seabury because Seabury would not swear allegiance to the crown. He couldn't after the War of Independence. So he went to the Episcopal Church of Scotland, and actually there was a little bit of liturgical horse trading They cut a deal, and they ordained him or consecrated him the first bishop, and he returned to the United States where he was recognized as the Episcopal Church's first bishop and as the bishop diocesan of Connecticut, his home diocese. This Sunday is commonly called 
Christ the King. And today includes a choral mass and brass and much pageantry and incense. But it's an awfully, in light of all those associations, it's an awfully complex image for Christ as being the king. It takes a lot of thought and discernment to dig down and figure out what this paradoxical title actually means. John's gospel plays up all of this complexity and irony. The setting of this gospel reading for today, how strange this is. Jesus is standing before Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, the one appointed to oversee Jesus' trial. So we're on the eve of the crucifixion. And there's this interrogation between Pilate and Jesus. Pilate is in charge, but only superficially. And it's Pilate who ultimately says to Jesus, so you're a king, are you? And Jesus says, those are your words, not mine. A profound moment in John's gospel and a profound reminder that our perception of Christ does not always match the reality of who Christ is. The words we use might not match the reality of his presence. What kind of king then is Jesus? Of the four Gospels, only Matthew's Gospel gives us some semblance of an answer to that question. And we see it in two very different places. The first doesn't sound much like a king, but when you know the second passage, it does. The first passage is words that some of us remember from right one, known as the comfortable words, when Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek or gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. It's kingly language, but only if you know what comes later, 10 chapters later, in Matthew 21. And it's that incredible moment of Jesus' so-called triumphal entry into Jerusalem on the eve of his death, right before he meets Pontius Pilate, right before the trial. And he enters into Jerusalem, and it's only in Matthew's gospel that Matthew, or the author, as the editor, gives us this editorial comment and says, Behold, daughter of Zion, behold your king, meek or gentle, and riding on a colt. That's how we know the earlier passage is about being a king. And that's how we know the answer is, if Jesus is a king, he is a meek and gentle king, and only that kind. Jesus' reign is also known by these and other virtues. His reign is not known by pomp or circumstance. He reigns from a colt or later a cross. And he bears not a sword, but truth. His entire reign is built upon the truth, reality, never violence. My New Testament professor has a lovely book about the paradoxical nature of Jesus being a king called Jesus the Meek King. And it's essentially a word study 
on meekness or gentleness and how it plays out as one of the central parts of Jesus' teaching and how gentleness and meekness in the Greco-Roman world is actually a great power that leaders long to possess. She writes, The temptations of greatness and power shown to Christ by the devil had no hold on him. All pride, all ambition and self-glorification were dismissed by Christ. Only one attitude mattered to Christ. Not to be Lord, but to be servant of all. The quality of personal relations is essentially love, Dr. Good writes. And it's this attitude, love and humility, that will survive and possess the earth. In other words... For Christ, the virtues come first, not the recognition or the power. It's a fascinating thing to think about. That with Christ, the truth precedes power. Power can never create the truth. For the truth comes from God, who is truth. May it be so with each of us who ever held Christ as our paradoxical king.